Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll conclude our two-part series on Iran with an exploration of what the country offers as a tourist destination. We're joined in the hour ahead by two experts on travel to Iran, Lonely Planet's Andrew Burke and tour organizer Rita Zaweda. You'll find that the people will come out to you and really talk to you, and they are so friendly. When I traveled there last year to film a public television special about Iranian culture, I was pleasantly surprised by its impressive historical sites, which date back to the Persian Empire centuries before Christ. Yet, in spite of its many attractions, Iran remains a mystery that keeps all but the most intrepid American travelers away. Andrew and Rita will help us to experience Iranian culture, and will compare notes on sites not to be missed. The sites are fantastic, the history is long and incredible, but it's the people that really make it. Prepare to shatter your preconceptions as we get acquainted with Iran for Tourists on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. One of the most challenging and perplexing nations on the face of the globe for the United States of America is Iran. For the next hour, we're going to be talking about Iran. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Andrew Burke, who writes the Lonely Planet Guide to Iran, and Rita Zawaida, who runs a company called Caravan Sarai, who takes groups to Iran from the United States. Andrew's on the phone uh, from Bangkok. And Andrew, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Rick. And Rita is here in our Seattle studios. Rita, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Now, Andrew, you're from Australia, and you write the Lonely Planet Guidebook to Iran. What gives you the experience to write a guidebook to Iran? In the last uh, five years or so, I've spent about eight months in Iran, traveling around with Lonely Planet. So it's now two editions of the Iran Guide and one edition of the Middle East Guide for Iran. Yeah, it's just uh, as uh, doing this job, you're able to go to all the places that... uh, often have skipped over by tourists and by people who don't have that much time. But uh, for me, it's, uh, yeah, I think that's the experience. It's just the time on the road. Eight months in Iran. Fantastic. And I've got to say, I used your book last year while I was in Iran for two weeks making our public television uh, special on Iran, and it was excellent. And I was thankful there's a book on Iran because not a lot of Americans go to Iran, but uh, apparently your book sells pretty good, and it's out in a brand-new 2008 edition. So congratulations on that work, and congratulations to Lonely Planet for its ethic of writing guidebooks to every country on this planet, regardless of how much of a market there is uh, from a sales point of view. Rita Zawaida, tell us what your experience is professionally with Iran. I've probably been doing tours to Iran for the last 15 years. I'm an Arab-American, so I'm just trying to do anything that promotes tourism to our part of the world. I think that's very important. And you actually take groups of Americans from the United States to Iran several times every year. Right. I take them about two to three times a year. What we do is people milk their own way to Europe, and I meet them in London, and then we take Iran Air in. As far as Iran is concerned, are these American groups or are these uh, European groups? No, these are Americans. And Iran's got no problem with people with American passports visiting their country? None at all. But they have to be with a group, is that but right? But they have to be with the group, so right. So the way I understand it, it's kind of like the old Soviet Union days. You could go as long as you had a guide and your hotels figured out in advance and you wouldn't get a visa until those prerequisites were met. Right. You have to have a full itinerary. And the itinerary, it's submitted in to the country. And what happens to actually get a visa is that you use a local land operator who then applies for the visa authority. And that usually takes about 45 days. So your company has a partner company in Iran that makes you legit as far as the government is concerned. And in your experience, and you've been doing this for many years, mm-hmm. has the Iranian government um, been reliable from a, they give you permission and they do not take it back point of view? Have you ever been uh, frustrated in that regard? No. When I first started, it was very frustrating. It would take months to be able to get things. Uh, right now, they are becoming so well that they are doing it very fast. It's so all it's very professional. From a tour it's guide very point of straightforward. View. And is there any concern about the United States government if your neighbor wanted to go to Iran as an American citizen? Does our government care? No. Everybody that's gone with me, they usually want to say, what's going to happen when I come back? And just say, tell them where you were. And they do. And most of the, the customs agents just say, what the hell do you want to do there? 
So it's not like going to Cuba, which involves right. some deception yes. for most no, Americans. No, there are there. travel advisories, but there's nothing that states you can't go to Iran. But what about the embargo? Uh, technically, we're not supposed to spend money in Iran. Is that the deal? We have a 30-year-old embargo on Iran right now. Right, but there is nothing that actually stops people from spending money or going there or getting a tourist visa. Okay, so your company, your company is called Caravan Sarai, and it's caravansarai.com, and I imagine there are a number of companies in the United States that are doing this? Yes, there are. Andrew, um, from your point of view, what's the difference from a logistics and a hoops and a visas point of view from Americans compared to Australians or Brits or Germans or French? Everyone else apart from Americans can apply directly and get a visa to travel independently in Iran, which obviously gives you much more, many more options. Um, the process is better than it was a few years ago, as Rita says. It's still not a, not foolproof, though, and there are still many reports and frustrated email accounts of people having to spend quite a lot of time getting their visa. Right. Uh, having said that, it's, it's very much possible, and that's the main difference. So if a Canadian or a French person or an Aussie wants to go to Iran, they just need to apply for a visa, and then they can fly in equipped with a guidebook, and they do not need to have their hotels prearranged, and they don't have to have a guide? Okay, so the people you see in Iran, if they're Americans, they're there because they have a guide or they're visiting family. Right. And if they're not Americans, yep. they may well be traveling around footloose and fancy-free like you see people, tourists in Europe. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Iran with Andrew Burke, author of The Lonely Planet Guide to Iran, and Rita Zawaida, who runs a company called Caravan Sarai. Now, Rita, you've been taking groups to Iran for how long? For 15 years. Americans? Americans. To Iran. And uh, to tell, Iran. tell me how, what's the safety? What's the reception for your Americans in Iran? Has, has anybody been hurt? Has anybody? No been one's f- been hurt. People are really well received. We give them a lot of free time so they can go out. They get to visit Iranians at home. And most of them, before they go in, they go, we're going to tell them we're Canadians or we're from something. I says, no, you tell them where you're from. And they do, and they say, welcome. We're so happy you're here. We understand there's a difference between you and your government. And there's that, nothing. That They're was very, my experience. very, very friendly. You know, the day before we flew to Iran last year, I seriously considered leaving our big TV camera in Athens. I just didn't know what the reception mm-hmm. I was going to get, and I didn't want to have an $80,000 camera uh, at risk. You know, I thought we'd take our little camera and sneak the whole thing. I'm so thankful we went with our big camera because I've never been so warmly received on the streets of a country. People knew I was an American, obviously, and actually it was kind of surprisingly fun. Andrew Burke, Iran, because of the American embargo, has a cash society foreign credit cards do not work in that country. Uh, Tell me what kind of problems that causes a traveler who wants to go there. Do you have to bring all your cash in with you before you enter the country? Yeah, that's the long and short story. That's it. I mean, you've got to bring cash. It's a cash society, as you say. Credit cards are no good. Traveler's checks are no good. The good thing is that there's very little in the way of burglaries and things like that are not common. You don't often hear about people having trouble with this. And so that's, that's kind of a relief. People, I know that people are nervous about carrying large amounts of cash around, but if you combine the fact that it's not a desperately expensive place to travel and you, you know, be a little bit smart about it, then you should be okay. What do you say, bring $100 a day and you should be all right? Yeah, for most people, yeah. I mean, unless you're planning to stay in the top-end hotels, $100 a day is going to be more than enough. Yeah, but if you're a Lonely Planet-type backpacker, that'll be plenty. Now, Rita, you have a different experience. Do you get cash in Iran, or how would a traveler manage well, this way? Well, people can use credit cards in Iran, but if it's when they're purchasing items or anything else, mostly. And even with the hotels, if they want to use it, they can. The hotels process it through Dubai. Okay, so there okay. are ways that—I talked to there, Persian— carpet dealers, and they do their business, they're exporting to America through Dubai or some yeah, outside Yeah, everything country. is done through Dubai, actually. But actually, if you don't want to mess with that, Andrew, would you recommend people just assume they got to bring in their cash and so hit up the ATM machines for a few days before flying in? Yeah, that's, that's what I'd recommend. Dollars or euros? Euros have become preferable in the last couple of years because just because of the political situation. So if you have a sufficient number of euros then you'll be okay. You can change these in, in any bank. You can change them on the street if you're you know, brave to do that. Uh, I agree with Rita that it's well worth taking your credit card with you, but if you are in a situation where you're not buying a carpet or you're not staying in a top hotel, then that credit card won't be of any use to you. So uh, you can go to change desks or little change outfits and give them a $100 bill and they'll give you the uh, local cash. 
I'll give you a wad of cash. Yes. Yeah, so you'll carry around a lot of cash. I found that it's uh, a little confusing, because what is there, 10,000 real in a dollar? Yeah, roughly, yeah. Ah, that's wild. Now, the fun thing about going to Iran is, it's just, it's a different world. I mean, I was flying into Iran, and everybody had metal knives. And the mm-hmm. pilot said, we're going to Tehran, and nobody got shook up. And I noticed when we got into Iranian airspace, when we were uh, descending into Tehran, all the women put their scarves on their head, and they prepared to enter the Islamic Republic of Iran, which has a different sort of um, standards for modesty and so on. When you get there, it's just an exciting world. Rita, you've taken Americans from the United States, many who probably haven't traveled much in Islam, right into Iran. Have they adjusted well, or has there been a culture shock problem? No, because most people will not go to Iran as the first destination in the Middle East. It's usually they'll go to other countries first. We give them enough information that it's really not a cultural shock. I think most people, the thing that they have the worst thing about is the clothing, and that's usually the women. What do I wear? And I noticed tourist women don't wear scarves very elegantly. They don't know how to wear them. Andrew, what's your take on that? Have you noticed the local women wearing their scarves, they know how to do it? They have they have a lifetime of experience. Uh, yes, they can manage to bounce a, a scarf as far back on top of their head as possible, I think, without it falling off. Yeah, you're certainly right. I think it's a wise idea to try and get a local woman to give you a little bit of advice about what's the best way to wear the scarf as soon after you arrive. But technically, every woman over the age of, what, nine is supposed to have a scarf on their head. Right. And uh, that's supposed to cover your head, and naughty girls will slide it back a little bit. Yeah, over the years, it's changed. You know, from the first time... I was going to Iran. It was you had no hair at all showing at all. So and it is now it's up. Now it's very, very loose. Now it's toward the back of the head. It doesn't matter what color it is. You have makeup on. You're wearing sandals. You can have nail polish. Uh, Andrew, have you noticed the same sort of uh, evolution into less modesty? Uh, yeah, and it happened basically in the last uh, 10 or 11 years since... Uh, Khatami first became president in 1997, right. uh, and it was quite a sudden change. I mean, all of a sudden, the laws that existed were not being implemented, and so people were, well, I think women, and particularly in Tehran and the larger cities, embraced makeup with a gusto. Uh, if you were a makeup manufacturer, Tehran is a place you definitely want to be. Or a cosmetic surgeon if you're dealing in nose jobs. <laughs> Or Fredericks of Hollywood. We'll talk more about that later. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Andrew Burke on the phone with us from Bangkok. Andrew writes The Lonely Planet Guide to Iran. It's actually selling surprisingly well in in a new edition. And Rita Zawaida runs Caravan Sarai, which uh, is based in Seattle. And they take tours to Iran several times a year, showing Americans that fascinating country. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. Their Advantage program can help you earn miles toward your next vacation. Details are at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. My name is Human Maj, and I like to travel with Rick Steves. In Farsi, that would be Esfaman Human Majdas, Mandustaram Baalay Rick Steves, Mosafarat Pokoram.
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined today by Andrew Burke, who writes The Lonely Planet Guide to Iran, the brand new edition just out, and Rita Zawaida, who runs a company called Caravan Sarai, taking Americans to Iran. Uh, Rita, how many years have you taken Americans to Iran now? It's been 15 years. And what is the most popular itinerary, basically? Uh, well, Tehran, there's not really much to see in Tehran. It's just the major city. But most people usually want to do Isfahan and uh, Shiraz and Persepolis is the major thing that people all want to see. I think it's uh, – I never realized that Americans had studied it in history from junior high school. And it's just one of the Persepolis, major, major points. Persepolis, yeah. I find Persepolis really the most magnificent ancient site between the Mediterranean and India. Yeah. It's just, Andrew, if, if somebody had 12 days for Iran, what would you recommend? Those sites are certainly uh, up the top of the list, uh, Isfahan, Shiraz, uh, Persepolis. But to that I'd add Yazd. Uh, Yazd, yes. is, it doesn't have a, any of the same sort of really big ticket items, but as a place to visit and, and stay, it's unlike any other in, in the country. Part of the reason for that is that the Yazdis have worked out that they can convert these old, you know, thousand-year-old homes which are made of you know, de- desert sand and mud, and they can convert those into small hotels, and they're really fantastic places to stay. That city has got them where they don't really exist any other place except for a couple in Isfahan. I think that uh, in, in being able to walk out the door and you're right in the heart of the city, you do your sightseeing for the day, you, you can go and see mm. uh, the Zoroastrian Towers of Silence and various other things. And then at, at night when you come home, you're still in Iran rather than being in some sort of faceless hotel. So that really uh, is a 24-hour experience. Yeah. So to review, we've got Tehran. You've got to check out the big capital, 10 million people or something. Esfahan, which to me has got the most incredible um, riverbank ambiance and uh, the greatest square for mosques and architecture I've seen. And uh, Shirez, uh, the great city of the poets. Persepolis near Shirez, which is the ancient capital from 500 B.C. And what Andrew was saying, Yazd, Y-A-Z-D. Now, all of those are in a, a fairly efficient loop south of Tehran. If you were on your own, uh, Andrew, would you do that by public bus or would you uh, have a driver or how would you do it? You can do it by, yeah, by public bus, by train. Uh, not all those places are linked by train, but uh, you can certainly go from Tehran to Esfahan by train. The trains are very comfortable from Esfahan to Yaz. You go by bus from Yaz to Shiraz and then uh, by bus again back up to Esfahan. They're building a train line from Shiraz to Esfahan, but I think that it's not finished yet. Okay. Well, when we think of the highlights of Iran, we're thinking basically of capitals of a great culture that goes back 2,500 years. Persepolis is the ancient capital. Right. And when, when I went to Persepolis, I was impressed by how Iranians were going there to connect with their culture. It was almost a, a way to go to their roots, you know, feeling the, the greatness of their heritage. Yeah, no, very much so. I mean, pretty much a lot of the sites that you go to, even when you were talking about the poets and Hafiz, uh, you'll see a lot of the Iranians will go to the sites. It won't be just the foreigners that you'll see or just the tourists. The same thing that if you're going into Tehran and you're visiting the the throne room or any of the museums, you'll find the Iranians are very much into the museums. Now, speaking of museums, when I was in Tehran, I was really disappointed in the National Museum there from an archaeological point of view and the mm-hmm. art. Uh, Andrew, when I went to the museum in Tehran, I, I, to, I, I was all excited for my filming, like... I had to talk to the curator. I said, I've got a major part of my TV show dedicated to the museum here, and, and it, it's really pretty, pretty thin. Where's all your treasures? And he said, well, they're in the great museums of Europe. <laughs> yeah. They have uh, plastic cast models of some of those pieces that are otherwise in the British Museum or the Louvre, uh, which, yeah, it's pretty disappointing when you go to Tehran to see these Iranian-Persian uh, masterpieces, but they're not there. Um, I'm not sure what I can do about that. Andrew, so from your take, Tehran is, uh, it's not a very um, comfy city, but it's a powerhouse of 10 million people. I think you've got to see it to say you've seen today's Iran. How would you approach Tehran, Andrew, as a tourist or a traveler? I'd just dive in as much as possible. Now, that's difficult when you first arrive. So I generally suggest to people that if they have a limited amount of time in Iran, they leave their Tehran part to the end. 
I think the other cities are much easier to get to grips with because Tehran is, as you say, huge. It's actually closer to 15 million people and um, they're really jammed in. I'm sure you know that the traffic there is nightmarish. Oh, the traffic was crazy. I mean, there were intersections where there was like eight lanes coming together with no traffic lights. It was not like the traffic lights were broken. They just never bothered to put traffic lights and that's the way they intersect and the cars would just kind of shuffle through and it, it works for them. <laughs> sort of. Uh, I still think that the Tehran is a fascinating place. I mean, the other cities have got the things to see. Uh, and Tehran does have some things. I mean, you go and look at the museums or whatever in the Golestan Palace and uh, go up north. But socially, as a, as a kind of microcosm of greater Iran, this really sort of sums it all up. And you've got all the different branches there, all the different aspects of society are all, all squeezed into this city. So just depending on where you are, you know, you go to the north of the city up to Tajrish and you can sort of, if you if you want, and you have sort of a bit of stamina, you can walk downhill the whole way, 17 kilometers down the main Valias Avenue. And as you go down there, you see you go from these this very plush uh, boutiques in the north and, and expensive cafes and women with their, you know, colorful scarves. And down at the south end near the train station in South Tehran, you're in a very much, a very different place. It's, this is conservative, uh, poor Tehranis and they're living and the women are all wearing the shador and um, yeah I mean it's just a different thing it's, it's, both these places are very welcoming you know you can go there and it's totally safe but as a place to visit I think it's, it's, it's a mistake to just skip over Tehran. Oh I, I'm a big fan of Tehran I just thought it was a fascinating city it's not your cozy city like you know Esfahan is so charming with its riverbank and its great square uh, Tehran is like Istanbul or Mexico City or Athens, I would say. it's uh, You feel right, the but, pulse of Iran. But Tehran has some really great museums. I mean, uh, I don't think you can put the museums down from the Carpet Museum, which is real central to walking around in, and you have the, the Glass Museum. You have the Jewelry Museum that is better than anything you'll ever see in London. Hmm. If you can get into the throne room and see the the peacock throne, and see some of the jewels that the Shah had. Also, some of the Shah's palaces that you can get into and see the whole collection of modern art that I think anyone in the world would love to be able to buy that he has. Wow. That's true. I would, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. Right? Yeah. I mean, for people that are really into museums, it is unbelievable of what there is to see there. So there's several days of good, straightforward sightseeing in Tehran. When you go to Sharez, it's famous for its poets, right? And you've got uh, this this rich culture of poetry. Hafez, Sheikh Sadi, Rumi. Tell me, Rita, what it is about poetry for the Iranians. To me, it was like these were pilgrimage destinations for families that would dress up and go there and read these poems? First of all, it's called Shiraz. Shiraz. Right. Okay. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> what, I said Shiraz. Like, yeah. yeah. Right. No, no. Okay. Shiraz. Shiraz. Okay. Thank you. And um, poetry, is, it's just, it's a romantic society. And poetry is used for all expressions in, in everything that you say to someone. When you translate anything from Farsi to English, I mean, Looking in someone's face, you know, uh, there are certain words that are used, you know, everything. It's it's very hard to say. It's just all poetry. It's all lyrics that that rhyme in so many ways. Andrew, when you go to Shiraz, how do you explain the passion for poetry to the readers of your guidebook? Uh, I think this this dates back to like more than a thousand years. After the Arab invasion of Iran in 637 AD, uh, basically it was it was decided that the, the language of the country would be Arabic, the same way as it subsequently happened through the rest of the Middle East and across North Africa. But during that few hundred years after that, these poets came forward, and particularly Ferdowsi, and in using Persian, traditional Persian, they basically kept alive the language. And I think most Persians feel very strongly about their culture in the sense that this is different to Arab culture, and, and these poets are integral in, in having kept alive that, that side of it. You're getting deep into the roots of the Persian culture when you connect with their beloved poets. Absolutely. They say that most houses will have a Quran and Hafez. And mm -hmm. that, that really is an accurate reflection, I think, of how central the poets are to the Iranian culture. Wow, that's pretty powerful. So they're poets, yeah, they're, they're bard, their Shakespeare is like a holy scriptures. Mm -hmm. 
And you get that feeling. I didn't have much of an understanding of it at all, but when I went to those tombs of the poets, you felt that this is really a, a cultural pinnacle here in Iran. Yeah, it, it, you called it a pilgrimage before, and I think that's really the best word. As you know, people go to other mosques and shrines as pilgrims. Uh, but for many Iranians, you know, they prefer to go to see Hafez or Saadi's tomb or Fadosi's tomb than they would perhaps to go to Mashhad. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Iran with Andrew Burke, author of The Lonely Planet Guide to Iran, and Rita Zawaida, who runs a company called Caravan Sarai. Now, when you're in Iran, when you go to these great cities, each one has a huge, sprawling bazaar. And I found them more, actually more interesting than Istanbul's Grand Bazaar because there was hardly any feel of tourism there. It was really for the local people to do their shopping. Rita, what are your tips when you take your groups to the bazaars in the great cities of Iran? Oh, yeah. No, it's definitely different. Uh, Istanbul Bazaar is more modernized. It's been opened up. The ones that you're going to see in Iran are still the very old traditional bazaars that you can see. You don't have any... Worries. And they got lots of tea houses, and you can stop and rest through the tea houses or your bath houses that are inside the bazaars that everyone wants to go to. And it's uh, it becomes fun. Everybody wants to talk to you. Everybody wants to ask. And they if sure you're a do. foreigner, you know, they want you to come in and sit down. And, you know, it's a full-day affair. It's not just go in, buy, and leave. They don't care if you buy or don't. I've never had so much fun talking to people, honestly, as right. when I was in Iran, because I stick out. I don't look very Iranian. And people wanted to talk. They were just curious as could be. I would get eye contact. And uh, as soon as I did, they would say, welcome. And I would say, hello. And they'd say, where are you from? And I would never tell them. I would ask them to guess. And they would always uh, guess five or six countries. They'd never get the United States. I'd say America. They'd go, first they'd say, what are you doing here? (laughs) And then they'd say, welcome. And it was the beginning of a conversation. It was the most fascinating experience. Andrew, when you're advising people in the the bazaars, what's a tip to get the full joy out of visiting the great bazaars in Iran? As you said, you know, just to engage with people. Certainly, you know, from a shopping point of view, yes, bargain and do it with a smile on your face. But um, uh, the bazaars are about more than just shopping. As you say, this is how Iranian society has interacted for centuries and centuries. And uh, that may slowly be changing as malls and things or other modern malls are built. But still, for now, the bazaar is central. So, yeah, you, you go in there and, and you just you just say yes. You know, someone says, would you like a cup of tea? Yes. Sure. Okay, I'll sit there. And then you sit in for five minutes and talk with people. I think this is really important for all aspects of Iran, not just in the bazaar. But when someone comes to you, as they will often do, and, and invites you to have tea or maybe to come and have lunch at their house or something, it's, it's perfectly fine to say yes. This is not like it would be in much of the West where people are unused to being approached by strangers and, and offered you know, well, they're going to be hustling you in, in Spain or Italy if somebody says that. They're probably trying to sell you something. In Iran, I think they're just excited to get to know you. Is that from your experience? Uh... Yeah, that's it. I mean, as you say, you know, people are un- unused to meeting foreigners. And right. so they really want to know what you think. And, and they will ask, always ask you, and I'm constantly being asked, what do you think of Iran? You know, how do you like Iran? Right. And they will ask you about your country, but they're very keen to know that you have experienced Iran in a way that is different to the way that you experience it through the television on the news. Uh, they're very sensitive to being thought of as being terrorists and all religious fanatics. You know, the, the run is not like that. And if you can sit there with them and, and have lunch with them and say, look, I understand that, you know, I, I understand the difference between the Iranian people and the Iranian government, then they are, are very grateful to hear that. In their religion, a, a, a foreigner is considered a gift from God, I believe. And I was I was in a traffic jam in Iran and the man in the next car asked my driver to roll down the window, and he, he handed a bouquet over, and he told the driver, give that to the foreigner in your back seat and apologize for the traffic. <laughs> it just doesn't happen to me here in the United States. And I thought, that is a beautiful country, and that is different than what I expected to experience. Andrew, I just, I'm so excited about traveling in Iran. Is there any way, from your point of view, that an American citizen can travel around Iran without a tour, like independently? Yes, there, there are ways. Um, I mean, I've met Americans traveling independently in Iran. Some of them have been there as students, first of all, and say so they've went to study Farsi for a month or two, and then after that they've extended their visas and traveled. 
I met one young guy who just spent six months badgering the Iranian Affairs Office in Washington, and eventually they gave him a visa. Huh. I met other guys who had been invited by Iranian friends, and so they they go and see their friends, and then they go off and travel by themselves. The important thing to remember is that if you do this, and it's possible even to do a tour, so you could take a tour with Rita and then extend your visa, that's possible. What has to be remembered is that whoever has signed you in sort of thing has, has been your either your sponsor, say it be a travel agency or or a friend, that if something happens to you, then they are the ones who are going to kind of get some grief about that. Oh, interesting. There are so many aspects to enjoy on a trip to Iran. I would say Esfahan is my favorite city. If you had one city to visit as far as a typical tourist destination, Rita, what would your favorite city be? Yaz. Yaz? Yes. And Andrew? Uh, I would say Yaz, too, for cities and a little tiny town called Garme, a little oasis town in the middle of the desert, my favorite place. How do you spell that one? G-A-R-M-E-H. G-A-R-M-E-H. And I imagine we're just scratching the surface anyway. There's a lot to see in this uh, fascinating nation of 70 million people. We'll take our cocktails in Tehran Beneath the never-ending Persian sky While the minions pass each other by On the crowded streets below We'll have an aperitif for two There's more about Iran and our guests online. Rita's tour company is at caravansarai.com. That's C-A-R-A-V-A-N-S-E-R-A-I.com. And the Iran section at Lonely Planet starts at lonelyplanet.com slash Iran. And they have a great reader's tips section about visiting Iran in their thorn tree discussion board. Andrew also kept an online journal of his earlier guidebook research trip to Iran. His report, as well as other related websites, are posted in the radio section of our website. That's ricksteves.com. That's where you'll also find my own travel blog entries and a slideshow of photos I took during my filming trip to Iran last year. You'll also find a preview video of the hour-long public television special I produced. It's scheduled to air this month on most public television stations across the United States. It's called Rick Steves Iran, Yesterday and Today. Check with your local station for the date and time it'll air. Up next on Travel with Rick Steves, more about Iran for tourists with Lonely Planet author Andrew Burke from his home base in Bangkok and with Rita Zaweda, owner of Caravan Sarai Tours based in Seattle. Rita's a specialist in travel to the Middle East and leads groups of American travelers through Iran at least twice a year. Unless government policies change, and they may because, as I found while I was there, the government actually wants more travelers from the West. The only way Americans can enter Iran is with a visa, and the only way they can get a visa in most cases is by taking a tour. Thanks for joining us as we continue discussing Iran for Tourists on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today we're traveling to Iran, and I've got with me two experts. Andrew Burke is on the line. Andrew writes the Lonely Planet Guide to Iran, and Rita Zawida owns a company called Caravan Sarai in Seattle that takes travelers to Iran on tours. When you go to Iran, right away you realize this is not just Iran. This is the Islamic Republic of Iran, and the people of Iran, uh, for many complicated reasons, have... Uh, well, they've replaced the Shah, basically, with a revolution, and the revolution has put a theocracy into power, and today it is called the Revolution of Values. The way I saw it while I was there, it was sort of family values. People didn't want Western values encroaching on the way they were raising their kids. To quote them, they said they didn't want their kids to be raised like Britney Spears. It was like a lot of small-town, frightened, conservative, less-educated Iranians were worried that their children would be raised to be sex toys or drug addicts or mindless materialists. Uh, to me, that's what motivated their willingness to live under a theocracy rather than a democracy. Now, Andrew, you've spent much more time in Iran than I have. That's my quick take after a two-week visit. What's your take on what's behind that sort of revolution of values today? There's certainly still a very conservative element, uh, a core of Iran, and 
you can see that, as you say, in, in the way people want to raise their kids and how they live their lives. But I think also that Iran's quite a diverse society, just as America is. You can find people in Iran, uh, sorry, in Tehran, living very Western lives, and they just kind of fly beneath the radar and, and make sure that they don't, uh, you know, step too far out of line, and they can pretty much live how they like. You, you know that Iran is an alcohol-free country. I mean, drinking alcohol is illegal there. That is a very strictly enforced rule. However, um, <clears throat> there is also a drink-driving law in Tehran, particularly. So there is acknowledgement that, yes, you go to just about any private home in, in Tehran and there is alcohol there. So it's kind of a funny thing. When I was in southeastern Iran a few years ago, someone was uh, offering me a drink and, uh, and I said, look, no, I don't really need one. Uh, thank you very much. And we then had a conversation about how in Australia and the West, it was it's fine to drink alcohol, but if you smoke opium, then you go to jail. And they said, well, here, it's fine to smoke opium, but if you drink alcohol, you go to jail. <laughs> uh, nonetheless, both things are going on. Uh, so, yes, it's, it's certainly a, a conservative core, and most people are very tentative about sort of taking the same road as what the West has taken in the last 50 years or so. You talk about these two worlds going on, and I understand that you've got the public world and then the domestic world, and women have a certain standard of, of modesty out in public, and what I understand is in the domestic world, within their homes, really anything goes. Is, is that your understanding? Yeah, I mean, and depending on the particular family, of course. Yeah, but if they uh, want to dress but... immodestly, they can in the privacy of their own home. We tried to go into a home with our camera, and when our camera went into the home, it was no longer the privacy of their own home. It was a public space, so the women had to be as modest as they would be on the street, so I couldn't really show that. Rita, what's your take on the sort of the two worlds there? Because in much of much of the world, there's one standard on the streets and a different standard. Uh, oh, yeah, you definitely have a different standard in the streets. I mean, in the streets, they have to follow the traditions and the guidelines of the government, and that's it, and there's the modesty laws, and you have the police that come and enforce those laws sometimes. These around. modesty police. Right, the so modesty if they, if they, police. If a woman is not dressed appropriately... Not appropriately dressed, they'll tap her with a, a piece of wood. And it's really just know, a, a, a... They're not going to arrest her. They're just going to say... You no, need they to. will... What they'll do is they'll fine her. Hmm. Uh, she will be fined, and you can have a fine up to $100, $200, $500 that can come up depending on how she's dressed if she is wearing a blouse that's a little too low. You know, we've had an Iranian woman that I knew that was arrested on our trip that had joined us for that because her mouse was a little bit lower, okay. and she ended up having to pay a fine. It's like uh, now Andrew said they actually have it's a dry society, but they actually have rules about not driving having drunk alcohol. Right. So uh, an admission that there is alcohol. There consumed, is alcohol. Right. My understanding is. You know, you have to be a person of some means, really, to be able to afford all these vices. You can get drugs or alcohol or sex or almost whatever you want. If you know what number to call, it can be delivered to Definitely. your home. Yeah, and we're talking, like you said, it is a different part of society. It's an upper-middle-class society that will have that. I would imagine when we hear Ahmadinejad saying these angry, bombastic statements, he's actually shoring up his political base, which is the small-town, more conservative, more frightened, less less educated part right. of Iran. Well, you have to remember he was a farmer himself that came in, and that's why he was actually elected into power, because a lot of the people in the, in the villages thought that he was going to make a lot of the changes for them. So we have to remember uh, there is two societies, like, Definitely like Andrew two was societies. talking about. And I was impressed how pretty much effectively the government has, on the streets, clamped down on vice. People um, conform. One of the most disheartening days for me, Andrew, on my visit to Tehran was going to the university, where I thought I'd find a lot of free spirit. And it seemed to me that the professors there were all conforming to the dictates of the theocracy, the students were well-behaved. I didn't see any anarchy, no clubs that do this or posters that do that. And I know that behind the scenes, there's plenty of uh, Western and decadent stuff going on. But in public, Andrew, wouldn't you say at the universities it's pretty much a, a conformist situation? For sure, yes. I mean, there have, of course, been various sort of student, uh, not exactly uprisings, but uh, protests over the years. And they have been pretty swiftly and brutally put down. So the students know that they, what they can get away with and what they can't. And I think for the most part that they do sort of any organizing and discussing that they want off campus and right. in the privacy, you know, behind the walls of their homes. Because the, the tuition is covered by the state, I understand, in Iran. Up to a point, I think people still have to pay to go to university. 
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined with Andrew Burke, who's the author to the Lonely Planet Guide to Iran, and Rita Zawaida, who owns and operates a tour company called Caravan Sarai in Seattle, taking Americans to Iran. Now, when I'm in Iran, I see this revolution of values uh, showing itself in fascinating ways. I mean, on every street corner, there's an alms box with a quote out of the Quran saying, Muhammad thinks it's good for you to take care of people who are uh, struggling, and if you want to give an extra money here, it'll go to the orphanage. Uh, when I'm laying on my bed in the hotel room, I look up on the ceiling and I see an arrow pointing to Mecca in case I get the urge to pray, I'd know which way to, to face. Uh, what are some examples, uh, Andrew, that come to mind for you when you think of how the Islamic Republic of Iran permeates society from a traveler's point of view? Those arms boxes are certainly one of the most obvious things. As you say, you see those on every corner, often two on a block. Obviously, the hijab wearing that scarf for women is probably the most obvious thing. Uh, I guess the other things are uh, just looking at the way that women dress, not just the tourists, but the local women. So you'll see a lot of women wearing a full shador, which is the big black sheet, which literally means tent, uh, which covers the head and, and, and basically envelops the whole body in this fairly uniform style. Rita, what do you see from uh, sort of evidence of the Islamic Revolution when you're in Iran? Uh, probably in just watching the people walking in the streets, the children in the schools. There's dress uniforms for the kids, the segregation of young boys and girls. And even in the, the universities, it's a segregation of the sexes that you see that quite a bit. Um, when you're going at the airports domestically, there's an entrance for women, an entrance for men, and women are searched by women and men by men. And some women would look at this as being uh, discriminated against. Other women would look at it as modesty and respect. Right. How do you see it? I see it as modesty and respect. I see no problems with it at all. So if there's a special part of the bus or a subway car just for women... It's not forcing women to go there. They can go in the men's car. It's giving women a refuge from men right. if they so yes, choose. Yes, definitely. But they don't have the separation of the cars. You don't even have separation in restaurants. Right. You don't have that. So and really, you, as a woman, you don't see it as downtrodden women so much. No. In fact, there are. I understand there's more women than men in higher education in Iran. Definitely, a lot more. Most of it was because of the Iran-Iraq war. A lot of men were lost. So you have a lot more women actually in the workforce more than ever. There's also another reason for that. Uh, it's true, about 66% of uh, two-thirds of university places are taken by women. And one of the reasons is that when they're teenagers, women uh, or girls are not allowed to really leave the house in the afternoon and just kind of hang out on the, on the corner and kick a football around the way that men are. And so they tend to use their time to study. And so you have this sort of social division, which ultimately leads to women being better students and more likely to get places in universities. Huh. Now, I understand part of the respect for women is there's no women's bodies used in advertisements? None. None. That's right. Yeah. yeah. No hair. Even if you look at the television in Iran, like an Iranian soap opera, and every shot, the woman's hair is covered. So whether, whether you're talking right. about them in bed, you know, in, in situations that that would never be the case. I mean, right. A woman would never wear a scarf to bed, but on TV, that's the way it is. So no sexy magazines? Not in, legally. Not uh, legally. Not, right. You go, to yeah. a, you go to a car show, do you have a babe on a revolving pedestal showing off the latest model? <laughs> no. <laughs> that's interesting. Andrew, what's your take on that? Uh, well, I've certainly never seen any. I haven't been to a car show, I must admit. There is a woman who, uh, again, in, in this two sides of Iran thing, and this is, I think it's always important to, to get back to this, is that there's a woman racing driver in Iran uh, who has really ruffled a lot of feathers. She's the daughter of a, a wealthy businessman, and, and she has managed to become, for, for whatever reason, a very successful racing driver. She was in the, the racing championship that they have in, in Iran, and she won. But uh, she never was able to pick up her trophy because it was it's seen as just, you know, this, this can't possibly be the case that a woman could be the national champion, you know, but motor I, racing champion. I understand there's women breaking all sorts of glass ceilings in professions, in uh, playwrights and film producers and so on, in the, in the arts and in culture. Yeah, there's nothing that stops them. I mean, the government doesn't stop women. There's just the modesty aspect of it. That, that's it. You know, you go to banks... You go to hospitals. I mean, you're women. Doctors. Are women doctors that work on women. Now, I was down in the riverbank in Esfahan. It's one of the most beautiful pasajata mm -hmm. scenes I've ever seen anywhere in the world. Everybody's out as the sun's setting and they're picnicking. Right. I asked the women there because they were 
I mean, they were wearing the chorors, but they were they were looking good. I mean, they were made up their faces and so on. And I said, so are you out, like, courting? Are you cruising? Are you looking for guys? They said, oh, no, we're not looking for boys. And I said, well, how will you find a partner? And they said, well, that'll be figured out for us. Mm-hmm. Right. It's arranged through the families. Families know the best. I think it's still going on that way in lots of parts of the world. In Iran, it's definitely going that way. But you still have some of the younger kids are actually doing a bit of dating. It's uh, The government's getting involved in finding that because you have like the fast food restaurants that they have, like your McDonald's and whatever else that they're in the young do end up sending text messages and they meet there and so they try places. to meet. It's, it's you know, but it's it's not someone they'll probably get married to. If they want to get married to it, they have to actually go through a whole different technique of trying to get married to that person. And they need to have their parents to endorse it? Yes, definitely okay. the parents. But still, you can, the naughty girls are down at the mall uh, dressing in ways their moms probably don't like, just right. like here in the United States. Andrew, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, uh, certainly the arranged marriage is still probably most normal way of meeting a partner. But uh, there's a lot of people I know. I mean, people, friends of mine there who are married to people who they met at university or at work, and you know, just fell in love with in a, in a kind of normal way, mm-hmm. what we would perceive as being normal. So I think that's certainly more and more the case. And parents are open to that. I mean, assuming that your person that you decide to like is not someone that they really, really dislike, then for the most part, they're just going to run with it. Well, I would think things are changing. I know in Morocco, the new king, uh, people actually know what his wife looks like. And the old king in Morocco was married through his entire reign, but she was never shown in public. And people had no idea who the queen of Morocco, what she looked like. And, and that's changing in that society. And, and things are changing in Iran. Nevertheless, the striking thing for a tourist in Iran is the modesty code when it comes to seeing women out on the streets. And the way I understand it is, by their code, their modesty code, women are not supposed to show the shape of their body, and they're supposed to cover their hair. Uh, Consequently, you've got women that can only show off their hands and their faces, and if they want to look good in public, that's where the attention will go? Yes, but women are sort of changing that dress code in that now they're wearing these uh, tight tunics where you actually are seeing the body. I've noticed that can, be, so. that can be adjusted. So it can, right. be, it can be modest or it can be fashionable, yeah. depending on it. where they're they are. They're pushing it as much as they can. No one has gotten down on them yet for doing that. So this is an evolutionary thing. I noticed the eye contact was powerful. Andrew, have you noticed that the power of the eye contact in Iran compared to other countries? Absolutely. I think that uh, men and women, they're very adept at communicating just with their eyes in ways mm-hmm. that, that we in the West are probably not, just because of necessity. I mean, they must, sometimes it's impossible to open a conversation or, or you know, chat somebody up the way that we may do in the West, but for them, you can kind of do a lot of that stuff without actually opening your mouth. And I got to say, as a tourist and a rookie on Iranian culture, this was one of the most fascinating and enjoyable aspects, was just to be out and about getting eye contact with people. Right. I found that from a lot of the men that were on my groups, they always assumed that women were untouchable, that they couldn't get close to them. And they found that with Iranian women, they could actually go up to them, start talking to them through eye contact. But you can't. The woman wakes the contact. It's not the man. The woman has to make the contact to invite you to that conversation by reading into her eyes. But you can't shake hands. It depends. The woman has to put her hand out first. If she okay. puts it out, then you can. And I understand seventy—about seventy percent of the women wish they could dress um, more freely. Oh yeah, definitely. Statistically, they do. but they just have to go with this because of the dictates of their theocracy. Right. But the minute they get into their home and they get to a friend's home, the first thing they shed is that manto or the shador or the tunic. I felt that leaving the country, going down the skyway to the airplane, mm-hmm. it was like getting onto a life raft. And as soon as all the women, the Iranian women, got onto <laughs> that airplane, man, their scarves were off, and we're in France already. Well, if you're looking to learn and get off the beaten path, Iran is certainly a a challenging and rewarding destination. Andrew Burke, if you were to make sure your visitor had one experience in Iran, what would it be? Uh, A single experience. Well, uh, I couldn't sum it up with a single experience. I would just say to really open yourself to to the people. Iran redefines hospitality, and that's what you're going to take away from the country. The the sites are fantastic. The history is long and incredible, but it's the people that really make it. And by opening yourself to the people, saying yes, 
going out and making a point of, of trying to talk to people and not being scared of doing that, then you will really come home with a fascinating memory. And Rita Zawaida, as a tour guide, what's the most gratifying aspect of Iran that you get to introduce to the Americans who travel with you? I think it's what Andrew said. Uh, it's being open to the people, open to the country, respectful of their laws when you go in. And once you are respectful of their laws and their dress, you'll find that the people will come out to you and really talk to you. And they are so friendly that you'll probably take a second look at the news when you come back home. You will not just listen to exactly what's given to you. It's certainly an important opportunity for a little citizen diplomacy to uh, realize that uh, there's a lot of fear on both sides, a lot of misunderstanding on both sides. And in so many cases, the flip side of fear is understanding. And we gain that through travel. Right. We have stereotypes of Americans have stereotypes of Iranians. Iranians have stereotypes of Americans. Well, let's hear it for traveling to better understand the world. Andrew Burke, author of The Lone Planet Guide to Iran, and Rita Zawaida, owner of the tour company Caravan Sarai. Thank you both very much, and uh, best wishes with your work, and happy travels. Thank you very much. Thanks, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more about Rick's travels in Iran on our website. We also have links to the websites of our guests. It's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Production and technical help comes from Sarah McCormick, Jonathan Lee, and Andrew Wakeling, and our theme music is composed by Jerry Frank. I'm the show's producer, Tim Tatton. Join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. New vacation options in Latin America, plus getaways in the U.S., Europe, and the Caribbean are at aavacations.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.